Blog Talk Radio. Hi, and welcome to The Art of Film Funding. I'm your co-host, Claire Papan, along with Carol Dean, author of the best-selling book, The Art of Film Funding. Carol is also the founder and president of From the Heart Productions and the host of this show. Our very special guest today, Karen Everett, is one of the world's leading documentary story consultants. She taught editing for 18 years at the Graduate School of Journalism at UC Berkeley, named the number one ranked documentary program in America by Documentary Magazine. Karen founded New Doc Editing, LLC, an editing and story consulting business that helps filmmakers structure compelling documentaries for venues such as PBS, HBO, Sundance, and other top film festivals. Her business provides directors with talented documentary editors, as well as story consultants. Karen consulted on The Russian Woodpecker, which won the Grand Jury World Cinema Prize at the Sundance Film Festival. She is also the author of Documentary Editing and has directed and produced six of her own documentaries. And Carol, we're very excited to have her on the show again, right? Absolutely, Claire. (laughs) Good morning, Karen. Thank you for joining us. Good morning. You sounded like, uh, who did Good Morning Vietnam? (laughs) (laughs) Who's that actor? Good way to start. Robin Williams. Anyway. (laughs) Yes, I miss him too, right? So we're going to uh, learn a lot of things today. We want to start with story consulting, editing short documentaries, and New Doc Editing's accelerated feature editing. So let's start, Karen, with your story consulting services, because this is a major benefit to many documentary filmmakers, as they're so can often go in dozens of directions. So the question is, how do you choose which threads to follow in a good story? And perhaps you can give us some examples of how this works. Sure, absolutely. And then, Carol, at some point I'm going to um, talk a little bit about us working together because I want people to understand how valuable you are. Well, thank you. Thank you. You're welcome. I think when talking about story consulting, it's first important to distinguish what we mean by story. Uh, I usually follow the screenwriter's definition of story, which is that it's about, A, somebody who wants something badly, and B, that something has to be difficult to get. It can't be a piece of cake. And C, it requires the protagonist to dig deep in order to to get this, whatever it is they want. so in, in the documentary world, we call this a character-driven documentary. And simply put, it's a three-act structure, um, beginning, middle, and end. So in Act 1, we meet the protagonists. Uh, we learn about what throws their world up in, into a, a chaos, and that's called the, the catalyst moment or the inciting incident. And out of that comes their desire or their goal or the quest of their hero's journey. 
Um, and I like to actually script um, uh, in narration or in an interview what I call a protagonist statement of desire, where the protagonist says in a sentence or two what it is that they want to, to kind of, uh, and then punctuate it with sound effects or music to guide the viewer to the narrative arc. So it might be something like, you know, I, I want to find a, a, a cure for Alzheimer's or I want to use AI to make a short documentary, or whatever it is. Um, in Act 2, which is the bulk of the film, maybe 60%, Act 1 is 25%, um, we focus on that part about what they want is difficult to get. So usually there are three, sometimes four obstacles in their way, and that's what creates a lot of uh, drama. It doesn't have to be conflict or violence. It could be uh, the obstacle is uh, creative thinking is needed to solve a problem. Um, so th this is where a lot of the drama comes from. And then in, finally, in the shortest act, Act 3, ideally, and we're always sort of adapting this three-act structure, <clears throat> which, is, which, which, which was born from Aristotle and used in all kinds of art forms. We're adapting it for a nonfiction uh, <clears throat> format. So that's why I say, ideally, we see the protagonists stretch beyond what they think is humanly possible to reach their goal. So a good example uh, would be um, <clears throat> When We Were Kings, about Muhammad Ali, or uh, uh, Man on Wire, I don't know if you ever saw that, Cheryl. It, uh, of course. You know this? Uh -huh. Yeah, okay. So this guy's trying to walk across a tightrope between the Twin Towers. It's very, very simple, simply put goal. And, and that, you know, figuring out what the goal could be. Uh, a lot of filmmakers know they're supposed to be a goal, but they don't realize that the more specific the goal, the better. So you can't get more specific than that walking across a, a tightrope between two, you know, the, the once twin towers. Um, <clears throat> so I guess the answer to part A to, to the question about story consulting is that um, the thread that we're following, ideally, is their actions to get what they want. So these are plot-driven documentaries as opposed to idea-driven. There's a whole other category of documentaries that are structured differently. We want to focus on different things. Um, so it's not a hero's journey or a three-act structure. <clears throat> it's not um, structured through a quest. It's structured through ideas. And I call these essay-style documentaries. Uh, and often start by posing a thesis statement. Um, I, used, I like to use the example of a... A doc that's been around for a while. Um, see if you can guess what I'm referring to. This, the uh, <clears throat> thesis statement, which was re pretty radical some 20 years ago, is that climate change is real. Can you? <laughs> I'm putting you on the spot, but oh, you, yes, can you imagine yes. what? Oh uh, 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 Al Gore, right? Right, right, right. Um, so in in that film, an in inconvenient truth. That was his. Um, his sort of hypothesis that he spent the bulk of the film proving. So in that kind of documentary, you start with a thesis statement, and then through most of the film, you're finding arguments to, to bolster your argument. And then at the very end of the film, you say, okay, so now that we've proven it, what does it all mean? 
Uh, it could also start with a, a central question. Um, one film that I, I often use as an example is, uh, who killed the electric car? This is about when GM uh, killed the electric car during the 90s. And look, and look at I know that. Today. That was fabulous, <laughs> who killed the electric car. Terrific. I know. Yeah. <laughs> so in that film, um, excuse me, in that format, basically the, the second part of the film is spent exploring different avenues of inve uh, investigation. So, you know, was it the battery technology that killed it? Was it the executives was it the consumers who were too afraid to buy a car that might run out of energy? Um, and that at the end, they they uh, they try to make meaning of it all. So so in those kinds of films, I like to and many people will make a paper edit beforehand, but I like to at least have a one-page outline that identifies the the central question or the or the central thesis, and then lists the ways that we're going to to examine it. You know, it'll be this idea, then this idea, then this idea. And then at the end, we have some kind of coda which makes meaning uh, so that the viewer walks away with a sense of, oh, I've not only learned something, I've learned something useful and purposeful. This is brilliant. It's so simple. Thank you very much for this outline. I, I hope you'll let me quote this to a lot of my filmmakers oh, of because, oh, the, Karen, they send me stories and I read it and think, Why? wait a minute, what happened? What's this all about? I still don't get the story. Um, and that's what it's all about. You're supposed to be telling a story and you really need to focus on getting the uh, information clear on what it is you want the, the protagonist to achieve, right? Right. And, and then if, once you have that list of plot points, yeah. um, let's, let's say that, you know, four items on the list are obstacles that the protagonist is facing. You look at those closely and you say, I have a whole lot of ideas I want to get into this film. Which plot point best relates to this idea? And, and use the plot point as a springboard for opening up a discussion, you know, usually among uh, characters or experts um, on some particular idea that you want to explore in the film, in a character-driven film. Right. Oh, right. By the way, Carol, I, um, <clears throat> I, I would like to invite all your listeners to get my book, Documentary Editing, it's in its third edition. It's free. It's, you can download it on my website, which is newdocediting.com. Uh, you'll find, you know, almost everything I've ever blabbed about in that book. Uh, and, and many, many Good. people have told me how valuable it is. So, um, yeah, hope, hope you guys can check it out. Thank you. That's a nice gift. Thank you very much. Yeah. Well, so it all goes back to one sentence of what they want, what the protagonist really wants, right, in the story. Right, in the in, in story. And I hope, you know, just to be super clear, not all documentaries are structured this way. But most documentaries that are winning awards and, and going to, to film festivals are, are character-driven documentaries. So, you know, something to keep in mind. Okay, very important. All right, now, tell me how you choose the first part of the film. 
example, how do you start your story? Because usually you're so wrapped up in the story, having worked on it for two or three years, where do you begin? <laughs> uh, because a lot of editors say that they focus on the first 20 seconds of the opening to make sure people are totally engaged. What do you think? Oh, yeah, the opening is so important. And if you're, if you're taking two to three years to edit your film, which some people need to do, um, you should be trying at least a dozen different opens because it is, I, I think, <clears throat> I, I personally believe it's the most difficult part of a documentary to edit. And, and I've heard a lot of people say that. So here, here are a few things to, um, to, to keep in mind for the first, say, 20 seconds. Um, number one, make sure you are using sound and video that looks and sounds stellar. So you've got to have high production values because research shows that the first thing audiences notice is not what the film is about, but how it's made. And they will make judgments immediately if the footage is dark or the composition is wobbly or even more important than video, the audio is scratchy. So don't start with that stuff, <laughs> you know, unless, uh, right. unless it's just so compelling. And then, you know, in the first 20 seconds, this is hard. You've got to somehow hook the viewer. It could be a crazy image. It could be a, a bit of a conversation. It could be humor. Um, the thing that works most of the time is to come up with uh, three or four really good one-sentence sound bites that are, are either very um, emotional. Um, how could they let them do that? Uh, yes. and use it as VO, or is uh, theme-related. Um, so something that captures the theme, like, um, and what often works well here are um, superlatives, meaning like the first or the best, or um, uh, she was the first uh, Surgeon General to recommend condoms in school. That's just like a statement from an interview somewhere that you put in the beginning. And when you have four or five of those, um, you, you know, they can build on each other. So how could she let that happen could follow that statement. And it, it generates two things. One is a sense of excitement and conversation. And also we start to get, understand what the film is going to be about. And so within the first, um, certainly by two minutes, um, the viewer should have, I use the metaphor of a roadmap, <clears throat> Um, uh, basically a, a sense of what it is that they're going to be watching. Are they going to be watching the rise and fall of, I don't know, Elon Musk, or are they going to be um, uh, watching um, four women who are seeking cures for endometriosis? So give them a sense of what the film is going to be about. Um, and related to this is it's what I call establishing the film's storytelling grammar. So every, every film looks differently because they may use a different camera, uh, especially with feature narrative films, they may, may use a different um, color palette. Um, but for documentaries, it's usually something like heavy on archival footage or um, uh, using actors' voices for people who have died in the past um, or using um, <clears throat> courtroom transcripts from 
the the Chicago uh, was it Chicago Chicago Seven or Chicago Eight? I don't remember. Um, so that sort of signature piece of audio or recurring audio or recurring video that sets your film apart. That's the film storytelling grammar. And the point I'm trying to make is that within the first couple minutes, you want to reveal a few of those. And by seven minutes, you should ideally get those off, off the ground so that the viewer has a, a sense that this is not only an interesting film, but it's, it's artistic, it's cohesive. It's using a recurring uh, uh, motif is the word I'm looking for. For example, it doesn't have to be a motif. Um, and, and then once you introduce that within the first seven minutes, you, you use those, those different looks and sounds periodically throughout the film. As opposed to, you know, three quarters of the way through your film, you come up with animation. And it's just kind of shocking and jarring and um, I'm not saying never do it, but, uh, you know, it should be a, a good reason for not developing that as part of your grammar throughout the film. Wow. <clears throat> okay. That makes sense. <laughs> well, <clears throat> I was uh, watching uh, Amazon and Netflix on Cannes a year ago, and they were being interviewed, and both of them said mm. that um, – that you have to have me totally involved in the first seven minutes. Uh, and even if you have to re-edit, that's, we're not going to take a film unless you grab us in seven minutes. So that must be when viewers decide if they're going to stay or leave, or the two of them both have mm. the same seven-minute cutoff to determine how many people are really going to watch the film. So that seems to be the critical area, right? I would, I would definitely agree with that. I, I, I think I learned that about 20 years ago from re- reading a, a Sid Field screen, screenwriting book. Um, I'm curious, <laughs> did they say, did they say um, how to do that? Like, how do you get your, your viewer totally involved in the film in the first seven minutes? Did they give any clues? They said you have to. No, they didn't. Uh, they said you just you have to have the viewer totally dedicated and committed to your film in the first seven minutes. So you, uh, in other words, these scripts and things that take a long uh, that you have to lay a lot of plank. That remember uh, mm-hmm. the cat, the guy the, the cat guy that used to write yes right uh, save the cat. He always save said the that. Cat. The, You have to lay too many planks to get to the story. Those films are not going to make it on either one of those platforms. That's true. But it doesn't mean those scenes need to be deleted. They could work possibly as backstories later on. Exactly. I'm glad you brought that up, the seven-minute, I don't want to call it a rule, but um, guidelines. No, I, I think I'll call it a rule because it's so important. And I, I have a, a couple um, answers to the question, well, how do you do that? Um, the first would be to make sure that the footage – so we just talked about the open. Maybe it's two minutes long. And then you get the film's title. And then make sure that the footage right after the film's title is different than the footage you started with. Why? First, it's just more interesting to see something different. 
and it's early enough in the film where you can throw all kinds of things up there. Um, it's, it's such precious real estate, though, that, that seven minutes, that you do need to be strategic. So what I, uh, if you start the film with um, sound bites that are covered with B-roll, so it's basically voiceover, then don't do the same thing right after the title. Start with uh, uh, archival footage or a, a news clip, which is very engaging, or start with, um, uh, I don't know, begin the protagonist's story. Um, and then I, I mean, I remember Sid Field saying, you, you just follow your protagonist closely through the first several minutes. And I would add to that to get to the inciting incident as soon as possible. Uh, there's another storytelling uh, screenwriting guru, Robert McKee, um, who you, you may have heard of. And his rule of thumb on this is, yes, to the inciting incident as soon as you can, but not before we know enough about the character that we care when something happens to them. Um, right. So, right. So, so, so if somebody's um, inciting incident is... Uh, I'm going to make something up. Um, their uh, <clears throat> their their uh, relatively young parent has been diagnosed with Alzheimer's, and this protagonist, who happens to be um, in the medical field, decides. So the inciting incident is the diagnosis and telling them about it and the emotion, and then what what comes out of that is the quest. And let's just say in this example. Um, the quest is, I want to find a cure for Alzheimer's. Um, of course, it would be much more technical than that. Um, I, w I want to find out, you know, how to reduce the plaque buildup of just chemicals. <laughs> but um, if you get that off the ground by, say, four or five minutes, and then stick with the protagonist um, for another few minutes, that, that will cause – I mean, the audience, I think, will be glued. Uh, and then, yes. and, you know – there's always a problem of, well, what if you have multiple protagonists? Um, that's tricky. Usually I say, uh, first of all, don't, don't have more than three or four protagonists because audiences will not remember them. You can have A characters and B characters, but um, it, it is tricky to get several, you know, say three different stories off the same ground, off the ground, around, excuse me, around the same time. But if they all want the same thing, like they all want to uh, cure their endometriosis, which is a film that I worked on recently, uh, then it, it doesn't have to be that hard. But here's a trick, Carol. You start with one protagonist for a couple minutes. Then you go to the next one for a couple minutes. And then before going to the third, go back to the first, and let's reveal their inciting incident. And then go back to the second and reveal their inciting incident and protagonist statement of, of desire. Now, now, you might want to even add a third appearance from both of those characters before you introduce a third character. So too many characters too quickly is just going to overwhelm and confuse, and confusion leads, leads to boredom. So, uh, yeah, that's my two cents on that. Wow, that's really good. Thank you very much for that. <laughs> yeah, that You're all welcome. makes a, a lot of sense, and I love McKee. Thank you. Um, yes. He is brilliant. Uh, story is one of his books, and characters is another, and dialogue is another. They're all You're so right. good. And you know, they have them on audio. So whenever I'm driving, McKee is in the car with me. 
<laughs> it's a lot really? of fun. Really? That's so cool. Yeah, I, I, I've not read the the, the uh, characters. What was it? Characters and the other one was dialogue. I read story. dialogue. Yeah. Yeah. Oh, interesting. It's well, story. Well, really, that's exactly what you need. That's the first one. You're right. But yeah. you know, story. I'll tell you. Uh, okay, now tell us some of the most common problems that you find at the rough cut stage, and how on earth do you solve them? <laughs> well, under the, there's a there are two big tents or umbrellas. One of them is called confusion, and the other is called boredom. So the, most problems fall in, into one of those categories. Um, uh, probably should back up for a minute and say the purpose of the rough cut stage is to really nail your film structure. So when you're, when you're ready to move on to fine cut stage, you already have the structure in place. So confusion, um, the, the easy fix is if you can answer using, either through narration film has narration and a lot of personal documentaries are, are just proliferating these days it's very easy with a personal documentary because the narration is there and you, you write a sentence or two um, or if you don't have you know a lot of filmmakers issue don't like narration I, I happen to think it's it's quite useful but <laughs> but if you're not using narration voiceover narration then you can you can add text cards um, and you know Maybe, uh, well, I'm, I'm thinking of this documentary I worked on called Below the Belt by Shannon Cohen. And it, it is the references I keep making to endometriosis. Um, and, and this is going to be a future podcast topic, the story consultation I did with Shannon on the art of documentary storytelling. We actually released it, and then she said, no, we can't reveal this. <laughs> so I pulled it back, and I'll be putting it out this year. But it was um, it was confusing uh, because there are so many details about the difficult, excuse me, the different medical procedures, and there are so many interesting but confusing relationships between patients and insurance companies and hospital policy that were really hard to follow and to see where the breakthroughs were. Um, and her rough cut had no narration, so <clears throat> we couldn't solve the problem of of adding opposition, excuse me, exposition that way. But it already had, the rough cut when it came to me, had three title cards. And we expanded that to about a dozen. <clears throat> so the virtue of a title card is, um, you know, it's text on screen. And it's, it, it allows you to write with, you know, crystal clear um, brevity the answer to, to the confusing question. And it also has the benefit of it gives the viewer a break from all the talking. So... In a, whether or not you have a, a documentary with a lot of talking heads, um, the viewer can read the title card in their head. And, it, you know, it resonates differently, and it has an, a refreshing quality to it. Um, and they're, they're making the, you know, the neural links and the, the meaning is coming clear um, in a refreshing way, kind of like having a new, well, it's not a new character, but it's a new storytelling device. So that's the biggest I mean, that's my best explanation, not explanation, solution for confusion. Um, another way, if, you're, if your film has multiple protagonists and their stories are intercut, interwoven, uh, sometimes um, those stories are so complex that people cannot follow them 
if we're jumping back and forth. And so that is the best case for telling one story at a time. Uh, for example, Iraq and Fragments tells three stories about life in Iraq uh, in, different, in different areas, but it tells them um, one at a time rather than intercutting. Uh, the boring part, I, I'm sure you're familiar with that. Um, it, 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 you know, it could be uh, in, a, in a rough cut screening. You might get feedback like uh, it takes forever to get for the for the film to get started. You know, it's a really slow start. Or mm-hmm. I just spaced out mm-hmm. in the middle. It was like a sagging middle. Um, or it felt like the film never ended, which is what I call the deadly denouement. <laughs> <laughs> so um, mm-hmm. the the there are a couple things you can do. Um, the first thing I would do, if it's a mess of a rough cut, is to just take out um, any subplots, any sort of B characters, um, and cut as much repetition and too much information, uh, like exposition, anything that's tangential, like you're going down a rabbit hole, just clear that out. And you can sometimes do this better on paper. And focus on creating either a three-act structure. So act one, you're going to need an inciting incident and a protagonist statement of desire. Um, or uh, the idea-driven structure we talked about earlier. And I gave mm-hmm. you two examples. There are many. Um, and get, get that on paper. Um, one way you can really add uh, drama, because this is the antidote to boring is drama, is uh, to make sure that you have an inciting incident. I remember I was working on a documentary uh, about Indian Americans coming, uh, not Native Americans, but Indian nationals coming to the U.S. to to, uh, get a green card in this huge backlog. And I, I had mistakenly, in a story consultation, cut the inciting incident for one of the, one of the characters. Um, it was an Indian woman. She was crying about not having money for school in the U.S. And, and needed to ask her grandfather to co-sign a loan. And I, see, I don't know why I cut it. Maybe I thought there was too much crying in the film. But my editor discovered, my staff editor discovered it was missing, and she put it back in. And it really added to that, that story. Um, there were, I think, four or five different stories in the film Alien. Um, so uh, mm-hmm. if you have a slow start, make sure you have an incident and um, a, a protagonist statement of desire. If you have a slow ending, it's probably because you don't have a, a climax scene. It's, it's a big problem with, say, biographies where um, – like I was working on that biography of Barbara Marks Hubbard that you helped me raise over $100,000 for. Um, and she was 82 by the, t- by the time I met her. And I think she was 88 or 89 when she died. Well, even though she was incredibly active all her life, all through her 80s, the big things that she did, the, the climactic kinds of things that she did were um, – were when she was 40 and she ran for vice, pres- uh, vice president um, against Geraldine Ferraro. Um, so um, sometimes in uh, character-driven documentaries, you need to be clever and sort of manufacture a climax. Um, maybe you move something, you know, like the vice presidential bid 
that that uh, may, maybe you move it to the end. I didn't in that case, but sometimes moving uh, a scene to the end and having it be a backstory that serves the function of a climax, which is for basically for the audience, the viewer, to feel their emotions at, the, at their highest peak of intensity uh, throughout the, the entire film. It should happen in that last sort of, you know, 95% or 90, 95%. Um, we just had a film uh, go to Telluride. It, it's, uh, it was called Carol Dota, Topless at the Condor. Carol Dota was famous for being, um, uh, helping usher in a lot of uh, good legislation um, because she was the first stripper to go topless um, at the Condor nightclub. And, and it was a biography. And in her later years, you know, she, she, um, she wasn't able to inject silicone in her breasts anymore. And she, uh, you know, she just wasn't fit to be a stripper anymore. And she, she had kind of a quiet life. She opened up a lingerie shop. So we had to come up with a climax. And the way we solved this was the climax was not something that happened to Carol directly. Now, again, the title is Carol Dota Topless at the Condor. The, the Condor is a club. So the, one of the managers of the club ended up getting tangled up with the mafia, and he was murdered on the stage where Carol used to dance on top of a piano. And it got a lot of news coverage. And it's it's called the story of Jimmy the Beard, yes. <laughs> so that, that served the purpose of a, of a really um, engaging climax. <laughs> oh, yes, it would. That is great, right. Well, there's always a way. That's brilliant. That's <laughs> uh, true. There's always God. a way. There's always a way. Yes. <laughs> Well, we're starting to see a lot of short docs be made, and I like that, Karen, because not every story has enough information to keep you glued for 90 minutes. And I think there are a lot of uh, great pieces of information that you can share with us in 20, 30, 40 minutes. And uh, so tell us about uh, the short. How, how does that differ from a feature? Uh, are they both three-act structures? Oh, that's a good question. I actually had somebody write in about that question, too. Um, and I apologize if you're listening to this. I don't have your name handy. But y y yes, it's, uh, if, it's, if it's a character-driven film, it's still three acts. But what's different is that act two, rather than being, oh, two-thirds of the film, um, it still could be two-thirds of the film, the length of the film, but instead of having three or four obstacles that the protagonist faces, maybe there's just one obstacle. So in a five-minute film, there's time to, you know, minute one, you get the inciting incident and protagonists like saying what they want, and then minutes two, three, and four, they're facing an obstacle. And then minute five, you know, is the climax scene. So, so structurally, it it is similar um, uh the the uh there's also you know longer longer uh now we have series and episodes and um if you have a really long uh feature sometimes like the times of harvey milk was characterized it won the academy award in 1988 i think one of my favorite documentaries about the first gay supervisor in san francisco um they actually call that a four act structure and and really what happens in a four or five act structure is that act two 
gets elongated into three sort of mini uh, obstacles. Um, and in, if you're writing to leave time for, I don't know, back in the day, co commercial-driven television, ideally those uh, mini-act climaxes are, you know, cliffhangers. And so you're, right. when you're done getting your bag of chips, you, you're still interested in the show. I'm curious when you, because, um, you know, when I started filmmaking in graduate school, which probably was 30, 35 years ago, I never even considered making a short, except that we had to do a thesis. It was a thesis film. It had to be under 20 minutes. But I, I feel like, and you would be a good person to ask, the idea of making your first film a short um, has been catching on um, because it's, uh, it's like a calling card, right? You don't have to put three years of your life into it, but you have something decent. I mean, what, what are you seeing people using that the short for? I think it's a way to go. I see a lot of people that want to start out with a $2 million, $5 million feature, and uh, they really have no idea what they're getting into. In, and I can say that. Even if they've graduated from college and they have a degree, that doesn't mean they have the real experience. So I, I think that you definitely need to make a short. I get people call me all the time and say, if I'd known how difficult it was to make this film, I'd <laughs> never have started, right? Because they yeah. have no idea. The, the things you have to learn are incredible. Uh, so uh, make a short. I think that is the best way. I've had people, one guy called me, he said, I've got $50,000 for my education. I can make a film or I can go to college. Make a film. You'll get more than you did in college and you won't forget what you learned because it's going to be your money on the line, your act on the line. And he was happy I told him that. He was successful. Uh, this is the point. You need the experience. Yes. Right. Yeah. Yeah. You don't need to go to film school. And he's going to learn skills like critical thinking that are typically learned in college by making a film that at least hopefully will, is multi-perspectival, you know, looks at a topic from different right. points of view. Well, I'm big on education, but I'm also big on do it. Get out there and do it because you're going to learn faster. But uh, I do like to see people educate themselves, and I really honor those that spent six years in college coming out with a yeah. master's degree. But you still should start with a good short uh, because the education of being on set, making your own film, there's nothing like it. Yeah. Yeah. So that's, that's uh, great we, advice. Move fast. Thank you. Yeah, move, move fast. Make a short, and don't break things. Right. You know, just like, but, don't don't break the budget of, of colleges. Getting, keep uh, the budget. Yeah. You have to stay within yeah, the budget. It's such a, a bad rap these days because of how much it costs. But everybody, I'm sure, is aware of that. Uh, that that's an interesting. Um, I I, I want to actually, actually since you just answered. A question. Uh, it would be okay if I asked you um, a question that I don't really know the answer to. Um, would you give this a stab? You may not know the sure. answer either. Um, okay. So it's from um, uh, Andrew Gonzalez. He used to be a student. He now teaches. Uh, used to be a student of mine. He teaches at UC Berkeley. I think he's still teaching at UC Berkeley. Anyway, 
He says, our film is about a group of combat Marines, includes a lot of first-person point of view in Afghanistan. He says, although it was originally intended for PBS, we envisioned a much larger global audience. It is littered with curse words. And our funder, who is a PBS affiliate, is asking how we will deal with them. Removing these words seems impossible without destroying the impact and dialogue of the story. Can you advise on how one would approach this for a PBS cut? Um, what are your thoughts about that, if, if you have any? Or who do you know who could answer that question? <laughs> well, PBS, number one, would yeah, be exactly, one place yeah. to go. But uh, I don't know. I You get the point across when you bleep it out. We all know yeah, you can put up the letters, you know, there are four letters and you get a bleep. Um, we get the impact of what the person was yeah. saying, but it is censored. And we know that's okay. We appreciate the censorship because some child is sitting there in the room, so it's all right, uh, I guess. I don't know what's going on in the world today, but I that's number one. You could bleep it out. I don't think that it's... Uh, it's right to cut it out because uh-huh. usually those things are said in the moment of a horrendous situation or despair, you know, or shock. Mm-hmm. Uh, and so you don't want to lose those scenes. What do you think? Well, I think that's a brilliant answer. I mean, the most intuitive answer is is to bleep it, not to cut it out. I did research yeah. this, you know, on Google. I didn't come up with anything conclusive uh, so maybe this is a good um, crowdsourcing question for all those of you who are listening or will listen in the future. Uh, feel feel free to contact me, Karen at newdocediting.com, or on, or um, you can find Andre's contact info on the web, Andre Gonzalez, um, and just put it out there. You know, it reminds me that in the first season of POV, uh, which is a PBS series, um, with like you know. 12 to 16 shows that are from a particular point of view. In the first season, Marlon Riggs, uh, who's a gay black man, um, made his mark with a film called Tongues Untied, and it was about being gay and black. And it had, I don't know, <laughs> more than you know, 52 bleeps in it. And he, he argued um, fiercely to keep in those words. It's like that's how, you know, these, these brothers of mine talk. And... Um, so there ended up being a lot of bleeps. I had not thought of putting, um, like, text on screen, like, S star, 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 or, or S star, 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 you know. But that's a good yes. idea, too. Yes. Yeah. <laughs> right. We get the impact. But 50 right. is a lot. <laughs> that is a lot. That is funny. But he was a great filmmaker. He was a great filmmaker. Oh, he was. He was my mentor. He got me into filmmaking with that film. Oh, Amazing man. Wonderful. Died in 1994. Uh, died of AIDS just before they came out with the first um, uh, medicines that would keep people alive. That's tragic. Wow. I mean, I, I, it's nice, nice to um, that you remember him. Thank you. Yes. You're welcome. Well, let's get to my favorite thing, the trailer, because I must watch it thousands of years. <laughs> and to me, that's your greatest asset. So what do you think makes a good trailer? Oh, I bet you watched a lot of trailers. Um, 
overall, I would say whether you're making a, a fundraising trailer or a trailer to help distribute your film, often called a theatrical trailer, it should, it should pretty much look like a theatrical trailer, like a Hollywood theatrical trailer. It will say to people, this is a trailer. These people know what they're doing. And so for anyone who needs to make a trailer, I highly encourage you to go to my website where I've created a 22-minute video, video tutorial called um, Editing Trailers, Seven Essential Rules, and you can download it. And, it, and there are plenty of examples from actual films. Um, so a few of those seven principles would be, uh, first of all, start Start, start fast. Don't start fast. Start fast with sound effects and, um, and quick shots. Uh, again, so it looks and sounds like a movie trailer. Often movie trailers will have credentials right at the top. If you don't have credentials or quotes yet, uh, you know, you can get people to write endorsements. I know that's what you tell, you tell your students. Um, secondly, high production values only use shots that look great and that sound great. Don't use shaky shots or dark shots or voiceover that is hard to hear. Don't use anything that you would need to put subtitles in for uh, without a really good reason. Structurally, um, it really helps to think of a trailer in three movements. So across the two-minute timeline, let's say, um, the first movement, you introduce the protagonist and what they want. And this is for, obviously, a character-driven film. Um, in the second movement, you, just like the three-act structure, you present obstacles. Maybe it's only one or maybe two. But, you know, the viewer's thinking, oh, this person really needs to achieve X or figure out X. And now here comes an obstacle or a wrinkle or a problem to solve. So it's like this second movement often defined by a shift in the music. And then um, the third movement can be very short. Just find a way to end uh, ideally on suspense. Uh, it could be a cliffhanger. It could be uh, asking uh, a bigger question or making something local, global. It could be, it could be humor. Um, but, just, you know, lead... Here's, here's what you don't want to do, is have them watch the two-minute trailer. <laughs> My girlfriend always, often does this. Uh, don't use the word always in relationships or, or never. <laughs> um, <laughs> she often, <laughs> right. okay. she, she'll often say, I don't need to watch that movie. I, just, I already know what it's about. I've already seen it because I watched the trailer. So <laughs> yes. <laughs> avoid that. So um, yes. I'll just... Um, <laughs> I'll just point people back to that, that uh, video tutorial on my website, which is new, N-E-W, doc, D-O-C, editing.com. And if you want to just watch a few trailers um, that are out there, the, the uh, trailer we just cut for a film called Safe Sets, I believe is on the website now, Safe, Safe Sets, about Hollywood sets. And Free Solo has a great trailer as well. Oh, free solo is great. Yes, that's a good yeah. one. All oh. right. Wonderful film. Okay, we're getting uh, short of time, and there's some things I really want to cover. I want you to talk to me about your accelerated post, because I think sure. that's a blessing for many documentary filmmakers. So 
tell us what it is, how it works. Yep. It, in a nutshell, um, it's designed to solve the problem, how am I going to pay for post-production? And it's certainly a problem I've had with my six documentaries, and even though you helped me raise over $100,000, <laughs> and it was such a force for me. Um, so accelerated post is taking what can be a five- or six-month editing process and turning it into 10 weeks. And it's designed for filmmakers who don't have the budget for a longer edit. Um, so we take the first three weeks and edit the assembly cut. And we ask the director to give us no more than 30 minutes of footage, like hone down your footage. You have 200 hours of footage. Give us 30 if you want us to do this in 10 weeks. So there's a little uh, work on the front end. And we can advise people how to do that. Then we spend two weeks on two different rough cuts, so rough cut A and then two weeks on rough cut B, and by the end of rough cut B, we should have the, the basic structure in place. Two weeks on a fine cut, and then one week for locked picture. So it's a terrific solution for, for, for low budget films, and the, the big drawback is that there's not a lot of time to experiment. Uh, so I'm constantly kind of reining in my editors and directors like, okay, but if we're going to explore this, that might tack on three days. Are you okay with that? And a lot of people do end up, who sign up for this program, end up adding a couple weeks. And, and they're always happy that they did. They're so excited with, with what they're producing and what, you know, with the editor's help. Seeing things, they were too immersed in the, you know, the details to see. Right. Uh, yeah, so that's that, and you can read more about it on my website. Well, I think it's brilliant. It's really Thanks. wonderful, uh, and I'm so happy you have that available. Filmmakers really should know all about it. So I know that you're so full of energy and you love what you do. So what keeps you going, Karen? <laughs> Night and day. <laughs> I brought up this question. I said, Kara, could I ask you what keeps you going? Because I remember you once <laughs> told me a story that I hope you will tell. But, you know, to be honest, I'm, oh, I've been doing this for, I, I think my business has been around for 15 years. Before that, I was teaching 18 years. So I'm 62. I'm slowing down a bit. Um, I have fibromyalgia. It's in check, but sometimes I have a, a flare-up. And I just, I just, you know, sometimes can't summon the energy uh, to deal with all the business. Last year at this time, we had so much business that I had to hire two, two new editors and a, a project manager um, and also raise our rates, which they tell you to do. Well, I think at the moment our rates are a bit high and I'm going to come down on them. Um, and so, so I've, I've had to learn to delegate. Um, but I also feel like I need a little time off to to realize to look inward, to reconnect with my my spiritual side, and and find you know the the true meaning of why I'm doing what I'm doing. I think you know at heart I'm a, a teacher, and documentaries are great ways to teach people. They're also a massive antidote to all the negativity in the world that we get from the. I heard somebody call it the Crisis News Network, CNN. Like they, they can be very inspiring and transformational. Um, but, but what keeps you going, Carol? 
still make her going. keep me going. They never yes, take a they. day off, you know. <laughs> they are up at six. They don't stop till midnight. And forget yeah. holidays, you know. There's no such thing in a filmmaker's mind. And, and I love it. I have never been happier. You know, I ran a business. I created uh, a whole new way of uh, handling short ends, turned that into money. I had the largest recycling company in America for videotape. And everyone said, oh, how successful. And I said, no, there's something more for me, but I, I don't know what it is. And while I was looking for what to do, the guy handling the film grant said, I'm out of here, I quit, and he dumped it in my lap, and I had to handle it because it was very close to choosing the winners of the grant, and when I got myself into that, I realized that's, this is, I've never been so happy, and uh, <laughs> and I think it it's kept me alive, you know, all these Aww. years. I, I retired years ago, but I've never retired. And I don't want to. I am having too much fun. And so well, is I Claire. <laughs> Claire, yes, Claire. Are you still there, Claire? I mean, you, you've brought some really Absolutely. wonderful people I'm in to help you. You're still yes. there. Do you write emails of on course. Sundays like Carol does? <laughs> <laughs> That's oh her downtime. <laughs> right. Yeah. Well, you've got a wonderful team there. And I think the grant was, was it renamed after your father? Uh, yes, was I it named it after him grant? because uh-huh. he loved filmmakers. Roy. And he, Roy Dean, and he moved from Texas, came out here to help me with my little film business. And, uh, and so anyway, he could have had any job, but he wanted to work over the counter and talk to the filmmakers. And they loved him. Uh, and only when he died did I learn that he was giving film away while I was chasing hot checks and trying to get money for features from independent filmmakers, which was almost impossible. And uh, he I could decide for himself who needed the film and who didn't and just was <laughs> let and this came out when he died. People start calling and telling me how they would never have graduated from college, etc. So getting that started, Robert Townsend jumped in and helped me, uh, and we had a lot of fun together t- getting it off the ground. And I, uh, I love what I do. Robert Townsend. I know, yes. What He's, a great guy. Do, he is. Remind me. What is? I know the name, but I can't place his role. Oh, well, he's a writer-producer. He was making his own films back in the 70s. Okay. And when we had the film company, Robert came in and said, uh, I want to buy some of your short ends, and I want to give you a credit card. And I said, wow, you know what? We've never done that before, but let's figure it out. And we did. (laughs) So he would charge it, shoot, come back, charge some more, and that's how he made his first feature. He, yes, Eddie, Eddie Murphy Raw. I see he did that too. Uh, Hollywood Shuffle. I don't know. But anyway, you had, you had a great support. Yeah. Um, well, that's that's cool. I wonder. Um, I don't know how long this this goes on, but I wonder if we should turn to AI, talking about um, the future of of AI. Do you want to go there, or should we 
I would I would love to, but I think yeah. we're going to have to do that on another call because we have two minutes left. Oh, and okay. We can't okay. get into that because it is a great conversation, and there's a lot to be said on both sides. You know, you must be very careful mm-hmm. where you put your material. I, I want to read this one sentence because I did promise my readers we'd discuss this, which is I think this okay. is, this gets right down to uh, it's a great article um, if you just. Google Fazion uh, video editor at Get Camera Crew. So he uh, says, um, while AI has made significant strides in automating a lot of tasks related to video editing, like color correction, it's essential to understand that AI is not here to replace video editors. Instead, it serves as a valuable assistant in the editing suite. I agree 100% with that today. I don't know what it'll be like in five years or ten years, but there's a lot more to talk about, so I'm up to having that conversation when you when you want to. Yes. Oh, yes, because uh, I've seen this program, Largo AI, and yep. they, uh, they will just flatline. It, you know, they will give you a graph of how your structure is working and, and where there's stress and, or, uh, and no stress. And when it flatlines, then you know that's a dead space. You have to do something there. So it's a way that the editor can then look at something uh, totally alien to them uh, and say, oh, this is an area I have to put more tension. I have to re-edit this. Uh, and so it, it working hand in hand, it can be very beneficial for the filmmaker. Absolutely. Yeah, I heard of somebody who uh, looked at where the peaks were and made a trailer based on where the <laughs> the peaks were. Oh, how exciting. Yes, it's a great way That's to do it. Okay, Karen, we have a lot to chat out at that next class, okay? Okay, Carol. Thank you so much. I really uh, hold you up as one of the heroes in my life, and I, and I love you very much, and thank you for all you oh. do. Oh, thank you, Karen. You're so good to me, and you're wonderful for filmmakers. Thank heaven you exist, Karen. All right, Claire. Thank you, Claire. (laughs) Thank you, Claire. Lots of good luck. And I'm very much, yes, I'm very much looking forward to, Karen, uh, having you back on and and discussing AI with us. I know you have a lot of wisdom to share there. Thank you. Thank you. Yeah. All right. Lots of good luck. Okay. Be well, everyone. Thank you, Claire. Goodbye, everybody. Thank you, Karen. Thanks, Carol. Bye, Claire. Okay. Now, in its second edition, Carol Dean's popular book, The Art of Film Funding, has 12 new chapters to cover all areas of film financing and how to avoid expensive pitfalls. Learn how to start with an idea and end with a trailer. How to make an ask for money. Create your story structure and your trailer. Legal advice, fair use, successful crowdfunding, how to ask for music rights, and what insurance you can't shoot without. Available on Amazon under Carol Dean and at FromTheHeartProductions.com. I want to remind our listeners that David Raiklin is a brilliant and talented award-winning musician who scores films and can compose music for a trio or for a full orchestra. David is a very good friend to the independent filmmaker and comes highly recommended by From the Heart Productions. If you need music to help tell your story, please contact him at davidraiklin.com. 
That's David, R-A-I-K-L-E-N dot com. And Carol and I want to thank you for tuning in to The Art of Film Funding. Please visit our website at fromtheheartproductions.com. You can also find us on Facebook and Twitter. Good luck with your films, everyone. <laughs>